Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This is the Court Today replay on C103. And of course, we always welcome your emails, Patricia, at c103.ie. And I want to start with an email because it's in reference to a death notice that Barry just had there. And it's not often that we pick up on death notices. But Margaret sends me in an email to say that the surrounding areas of Donora, Castletown Roach, Killavollen and indeed further afield were devastated to hear of the death of Hannah Sheehan of Scanakilla. And for people outside of the area, Hannah Sheehan of Scanakilla ran this little country pub literally in the middle of nowhere and you would step in into this pub and it was as if time stood still. It's one of the very old traditional rural pubs. Um, just a wonderful, that wonderful atmosphere that we'll never get. We will never get in any of the bigger pubs for sure. Anyway, uh, the email reads, Hannah has held fort there for years, first with her parents and then with her brother. Her pub was a welcome stop for many travelling through, but also for the local community. The pub never changed over the years and it was one of the few left where you could have a drink and then collect the tea bags, the sugar and the beans for the morning. But Hannah was far more than a landlady of Scanakilla pub. Hannah was loved by all who knew her. Her little home was the base of many a sing-song, a table quiz, the stations, the GAA draws and just a quiet place to chat. The boundaries of Hannah's house faded when you entered the pub. You were as likely to find yourself in the kitchen or the sitting room as you would find yourself in the bar. Hannah was a mecca for everyone, young and old. Her little kitchen hosted a huge table with the drawer at the end, an old dresser which displayed the cups, the saucers and the tea and the coffee. There was always a bun in the tin box. You didn't have to move far to reach anything. Hannah took being laid back to a new level always ready to say yes to an event. She was soon on the phone to her most loyal friends to help her out. They never left her down. Hannah stood back and took all the plaudits in her stride with a smile on her face. Oh, how she loved nights when the place was buzzing. Hannah was at home with everyone. She was a lady. Her likes will never be known again, Patricia. She left suddenly and has left a huge hole in her community. Aryesh de Gurevan Anam Adila. That's the late Hannah Griffin, whose removal, and I imagine it's going to be a huge removal, is uh, this evening at half past seven from Hannah's 
funeral home in Donnerail and then Mass will be at Anakisha Church tomorrow morning at 11am and uh, many people no doubt over the coming days with the removal and the funeral uh, tomorrow will be all have very fond memories and will all have uh, wonderful stories to tell of uh, Hannah. Uh, may she rest in uh, peace. And somebody's just corrected me, say, Patricia, it's Hannah Griffin who passed away. Sorry, did I say she and I meant Griffin. Hannah Griffin, of course, of uh, Scanna Killer. And we, she's remembered very, very fondly uh, today. And our deepest sympathies to her family and to her friends. Uh, 1850 Coming up on the programme this morning, it's interesting that, you know, we talk about Hannah Griffin and she running a little rural pub pubs are going to be the focus of part of the programme today because we were contacted yesterday on the programme by Mike who feels that pubs now that they open on Good Friday they now should be opening on Christmas Day as well or at very least should we be getting the debate going about opening the pubs on Christmas Day so we decided we're going to have the Vintners Federation joining us. I have a funny feeling there isn't a huge appetite by the Vintners to open on Christmas Day but we're putting it putting it out there and we had it up on social media massive reaction overnight on social media to it but we're looking for your thoughts on should pubs open on Christmas Day there was a huge hoo-ha and there was uh, quite a campaign to get the pubs to open on Good Friday and not everyone was very happy with the pubs opening on Good Friday they've been open for what the last two years and even last year which was the second year of it we still have people complaining we still have people feeling that it was a wrong move we also know that some of our rural pubs in rural towns decided to stick with the tradition and they don't open on Good Friday so I can't see them wanting to open on Christmas Day but is Christmas Day is that very different to Good Friday is, it, is Christmas Day a very traditional day when it's all about families and therefore for that reason we shouldn't even be discussing or even thinking about opening a pub on Christmas Day. Some of your thoughts in via our social media sites. Martin said it's one day of the year. It's meant to be a family day for God's sake. Surely people can survive one day without going to the pub. While Jim says I am of the idea that it would be good to open the pubs on Christmas Day. Not all days, says Jim. From 6 in the evening until 11.30 at night. Christmas night. Christmas night can be quite boring with rubbish on the telly, says Jim. It would be a nice way to celebrate with family and friends in a convenial atmosphere. So he's all on for the pubs, but only open them in the evening time. Barry says, I would say no personally, but I do see the benefits for some people. There are many people out there who have no one to spend Christmas Day with. The pub opening might make their day a little bit less lonely. Michelle says, why does Mike, who contacted us, feel the need for pubs to open on Good Friday? Does he go to the pub every single day of the year? Unlikely. Why would he want to open it on Christmas Day as well? Uh, Neve says, now this is interesting, as somebody who works in the bar trade, these are the people that need to be listened to. I would be very much against the idea of pubs opening on Christmas Day. It's the one day of the year that we're guaranteed to spend it with our families. So Mike, message from Mike, buy yourself a few cans and enjoy them in the comfort of your own home. And give the rest of us a break, says Neve, who works in the bar trade. Damien says, they open in England for a few hours before dinner. It's in the morning time. What's 
the big deal. Meeting up with friends and family for dinner for a few pints. Damien thinks not a bad, not a bad idea. The day can be long if you're stuck at home all day and you're stuck with the in-laws. So why not escape for a few hours to the local pub? So Damien would have them open during the day as opposed to the previous texter who wanted them open at night. Anne says, simple word, no. Pubs should not open on Christmas Day. How many families will be without a parent, etc., if pubs were to open? And what about drink driving? Pubs should be... Oh, no, Anne goes a step further. Pubs should be closed 365 days, never mind Christmas Day. Get real. Pubs, as as it stands, are closing down all around us. And Declan says, why? was only a matter of time that this was going to be brought up the idea of opening pubs on Christmas Day once Good Friday was overturned Christmas Day was of course going to be next to be targeted absolutely 100% against this Christmas Day is about family and anyone feels that they can't go one day without a visit to the pub has problems I'm sorry but this should never be debated it should never ever even be spoken about for anybody to even look at this. Mary says, when I lived and worked in Irish pubs in the United Kingdom, some were open, but just for Christmas morning. Mary's memory of that day, trying to get them out of the pub was an absolute nightmare. Then afterwards to hear that some families had their day ruined on Christmas Day. Why? Because a family member turned up had had way too much drink in the pub on Christmas morning and then was drunk for the day. Keep the doors closed. It's one day of the year, says Mary. James says, what about the people living on their own? No family, but they'd like to go for a pint and meet other people. Better than being stuck in all day, even if it's only for an hour or two. And Court says, greedy grabbing publicans. It will cause family breakups and it won't be special anymore. Booze and drugs for Christmas Day, disgusting and unnecessary, even though, and we will be speaking with the Vintners Federation. My gut instinct is that you're wrong saying greedy, grabbing publicans because my gut instinct is that there isn't an appetite amongst publicans. I don't think publicans want it. If there's anybody wants this, it's members of the public. I can't see the publicans themselves because it's during that very busy period they're going to be busy over Christmas anyway. They're, they're certainly going to make their money over the Christmas period. I think it's the one day that they want to be off. John in Cove says the pubs should be open. Christmas Day can be a miserable day for many. So clubs and bars, etc. should be allowed to open on that day. People should be able to enjoy themselves on Christmas night. Just have two days for Christmas holidays. Christmas Day and St. Stephen's Day. Get rid of this black Black Day that hangs over the 25th. Get rid of this Black Day that hangs over. Okay, so obviously John feels with nowhere to go that it can be a lonely day, which is what a number of people are saying. And then it's interesting. I'm I'm seeing people say things like open it between 12 and 2. So open it in the morning time, early afternoon, so that people could go for a pint before dinner. And then who's at home cooking the dinner, dare I ask that question? Uh, And then somebody else is saying, have it open between 12 and 2, but then open it again between 6 and 8 in the evening. That would be lovely. You don't have to have it open all day long. So the theory being that staff would still get to spend time with family members, but for so many hours of the day, they would have to work. But how unfair is that on the actual bar uh, staff? Text just in, no to pubs opening on Christmas Day. They should be closed on Christmas Eve as well, as you have people coming into mass drunk. Now, is that that's is that still 
uh, an issue. I know when I lived many years ago in Clonmel, we always had a wonderful midnight mass in the friary in Clonmel, a most beautiful, beautiful little church. And the friars then over the years had to stop midnight mass at midnight and they brought it back, I think, to nine o'clock, eight, nine o'clock, that kind of time instead. And the reason they had to do it was people were coming in from the pubs and coming into the church for midnight mass and they were drunk. They were literally were drunk. I know of a neighbour of mine who did, has a weak enough stomach was sitting in the seat inside in the church and a very well-heeled woman, said beautifully turned out, gorgeously dressed, obviously had her best Sunday her best Christmas outfit on her and they were in the middle of the sermon and he said from the minute the woman sat in it was very obvious you could smell the drink she'd she'd come straight from the pub and in the middle of the sermon this woman picked up her handbag opened it up and proceeded to vomit into it and then closed the bag put it down in front of her and sat inside in the church but the smell he said was just now he stuck it out but he said it was dreadful he thought he was, he was going to join her in the end uh, because he doesn't have the strongest stomach but there was problems then with people at the back of the church getting sick there was problems with people just causing hassle so the poor old friars decided that they had to row back and I think they, it went to nine o'clock and I think that happened in a number of other churches as well so I don't know how many churches still have the tradition of midnight mass at midnight and if they do is that still a problem that people are coming into the church drunk, which is hugely disrespectful, really, really disrespectful. So your thoughts on Christmas Day, opening of the pubs, welcome throughout the morning, please. 1850-333-103. How the City Council is dealing with the housing crisis. We're going to be discussing that on the programme today. There was a protest by homeless families that was held outside last Monday night's council meeting. Obviously, homeless families bringing it to the steps of the council saying look at us please don't forget us uh, so we're going to find out what the ca- what the city council are doing how much can they do how much are they dependent on the government giving them the funding in, or- in order to build the houses but even when we hear of houses going ahead are we building the houses quick enough do we need to have more rapid bills we've got people in homeless people living in emergency accommodation who have there's no sign of them for 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 a year or more getting accommodation. We need fast. We need housing available and we need it available quickly. There's no point telling somebody in homeless accommodation, oh, we've you know, just got planning for houses. You know, they'll be turnkey ready for you in three years time, two, three years time. That's of no use to somebody living in emergency accommodation. So we'll discuss that. Now, we're remembering the three from Oi brothers. These are the Sheen brothers that I mentioned on Monday on the programme because I discovered over the weekend that there was a commemoration ceremony held in Belgium for the three for three Sheehan brothers who had all been born in Formoy. They joined the Canadian army and the three they're all young men in their twenties the three of them went off to war during the Second World War. None of them, none of them came home. And there was a special commemoration at one of them. One of the boys is buried in Belgium. So at his grave in Belgium, there was a special commemoration ceremony uh, held. And I had been unaware of the Sheehan boys. So I decided to do some research on it. So we're going to bring on the person who was responsible for organising that commemoration ceremony. And I want to talk a little bit more about the Sheehan brothers, who, as I say, were originally from Formoy. Their parents had a bakery business in Formoy. Now, they would have left in the 1920s, late 1920s, kind of after the War of Independence, they would have left and gone to uh, Canada. But all the boys were born in Formoy. And I saw somebody 
sent in a text when they heard me mention it uh, to say, uh, Patricia, the Holly Bow has the story of the Sheehan brothers that you're going to be talking about today and also the five brothers who went down in the uh, American ships as mags. Is that the Sullivan brothers that Saving Private Ryan was based on? They're an Irish-American family, the, the Sullivans were. Whereas these Sheehan boys were all born in from Oi. They really, they reckon it's the, they're the family that has the biggest tragedy when it came to, there's no other family in the south of Ireland that lost so many in one war as the Sheehan brothers did. But thank you Mags for that. Actually I got the Holly Bell, it's just a coincidence that you mentioned that because the my copy of the Holly Bell arrived in the post today. So thanks to the guys at the Holly Bell and yes we will be featuring it on the programme because it's one of those lovely, lovely publications that how do you know it's the start of Christmas when you see the holly bough appear out in the shops and I just love flicking through it and I love I look forward to reading what the Sheehan uh, brothers and some of the other lovely stories contained in the holly bough but thank you Mags for drawing our attention uh, to that we will be offering advice to families struggling to pay their mortgage and trying to get the message across that help is available and it is Wednesday so Peter Dowdle of the uh, irishgardener.com joins us answering one of your gardening questions huge huge reaction to this notion of should we open pubs on Christmas Day or should we at least start having a discussion around opening pubs on Christmas Day when you look at how long it took for the legislation to change to open the pubs on Good Friday people are saying at least have a debate about it see if people would like to have pubs open on Christmas Day and John Paul says he's actually surprised at the number of calls that he's getting in from people who are living on their own people who are saying they wouldn't normally go to the pub but the idea of going to the pub on Christmas Day is kind of pleasing to them because they feel they have a little bit of company. Isn't that really sad? So there are a cohort of people who don't necessarily want to go there for the alcohol side of it but just to go there for a little bit of company. Anthony in Middleton says, I agree with John in Cove who contacted you earlier, opened the pubs instead of having family members sitting down across from each other pretending to be happy and pretending to like each other. Oh, God, Anthony. And she says it can be a depressing enough day as it is. Let people get out and get to the pub. Maura says, I think for some communities it might be nice for pubs to uh, open for a local community. For example, they could gather, say, on Christmas morning, maybe all gather after mass, go in for a drink or two. But Maura reckons her suggestion would only work for a family-run pub. You'd have to be careful what you're drinking. You don't want anybody going home drunk. Margaret in Kenturk said a lot of people should open their doors for the people that need company on Christmas Day. We often, said Margaret, bring people into our own home on Christmas Day so that they can have company on the day itself. Well done. It's very Christian of you, uh, Margaret. Well done to you. Dorian in Ballyfaham. I would be against pubs opening on Christmas Day for family reasons. You could have a family member going home, a son or a daughter, to a mother or father drunk on Christmas Day and then they ruin Christmas Day for everyone. I often remember watching television programmes on UK channels of a husband coming home drunk to his wife, ruining Christmas Day for them by getting abusive, then going off to bed and the wife crying. I said to myself when I watched that on the TV, thank God that our pubs in Ireland are closed for Christmas Day, so please leave them closed. Elizabeth in Hollow, I live alone. My family are all living abroad. I've only a small family, so I often have spent Christmas Day all on my own and my family will Skype me and we all get very emotional. They want to visit 
They want me to visit them and have even offered to pay for my flights, but I would rather stay at home. They do come home every second or third Christmas, but with the cost of flights from New Zealand, it's very hard. And I don't expect them to come every year. None of us have that kind of money to pay for flights for every Christmas anyway. Also, I would like a community centre or something like that to open on Christmas Day so that people like me and others in my position could meet meet up on the day what is happening of late people of my generation are unfortunately passing away so I'm losing my friends oh bless your heart uh, Elizabeth I wonder if you is there any neighbours have you any other family members any relatives are people aware that you're on your own because see sometimes people don't know because when you listen you know when you heard the earlier comment in from Margaret in Canturk which is in the Dohalo area Margaret in Canturk said they often have people join them at their Christmas table and spend the day with them. They're offering company to people. I wonder, Elizabeth, if you put it out there, if you said to people that you're lonely on Christmas Day and, you know, explain that none of the family are home this year, you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised at the kindness of people, particularly around Christmas. I think people start to feel very Christian and become extra kind at Christmas. I think many people would be more than willing, Elizabeth, to have an extra chair at the table and to have an extra seat on the couch for you to sit down and watch this the Christmas movie uh, with them. 1850 Thank you, though, uh, for your call. You can text or WhatsApp Egfoilemach Agus na rarkana oile a hoid in Lohersa er vruchnali. Nukta, quid denaniha is Fari Gorkik, C103. C103 brings you Farm Talk with John O'Connor. Saturdays at 10 a.m. and Wednesdays at 10 p.m. Can you outline some of the main Chagask recommendations for the safe application of pesticides? It says on the label what distance to keep away from public sources of water. Turn on Farm Talk with Dairy Gold Agribusiness for quality feed, expert service and support you can trust. Only on C103. Record today on C103. Call Patricia with your comment. 1850-333-103. And I will get back to your comments coming in on pubs opening on Christmas Day and should or should they not uh, open but I want to move to a different issue because on Monday evening last homeless families and their children protested outside Cork City Hall before this week's council meeting. The Sinn Féin organised protest was staged to highlight the scale of the housing crisis and local Sinn Féin councillor Thomas Gould uh, joins me. Good morning to you Thomas. Good morning Patricia. Uh, you're, you're welcome. How many families turned up and, and what was their message to you the councillors? What you had, you had a dozen families with children, but you also had parents or one parent uh, because it was really wet and cold on Monday night, to be honest. It was a horrible night. But it actually just goes to emphasise what people were dealing with, you know. And um, 
So you probably had about 20 families in total represented, and then you might have had another 100 people who were friends or supporters who came in on the night, you know. And these are families that are living where at the moment? Uh, they're living in B&Bs, they're living in hotels, they're living in the family hubs. Some of the men are in Simon Community or St. Vincent's Hostel. So they're, they're, uh, some, there was actually a few people in there who were living with parents or grandparents. You know, there was one there was one lady in there now and there's 11 of them living in her mother's oh house. My yeah. My God. And, and they're not counted in the homeless figures, are they? No, no, no. they're not. But you see, the the problem with the families that are that are under emergency accommodation is the trauma, the traumatic effect that it has on the children long term uh, is huge. And some families would sooner be overcrowded with their parents or grandparents because it's still your family, and it's like being overcrowded is one thing, but being homeless is just the stigma and the shame and the effects it has on families is just. It's frightening. It's like there was one lady you now speaking on Monday night how um, how our child uh, doesn't want to go to school anymore because uh, people know he's living in a hotel. Yeah. Uh, for a child, for a child of eight or nine years of age. Wow! Like and I know for teenagers. I mean, teenage years can be such a difficult time anyway. But we would have heard from families whose uh, teenage sons and daughters, in particular, and just terrified that somebody in the school is going to find out that they're living in a local hotel or a local B&B. That's right. And a lot of them are, they're not telling their friends about their circumstances because they're so concerned that it'll get out there and the shame that, it, like, teenagers are very vulnerable any, anyway and very emotional because of their age and and for stuff like this to get out, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable, Patricia. And just, the thing about it, there's no need for it. There's, like, like I, I, I'm always critical of the government for a lot of their policies, but I also put forward solutions. And we have enough houses and land and derelict buildings around Cork at the moment that we can house all these families. And that's that's the tragedy here that we could actually we could have no homeless people in Cork if the government d- decided tomorrow morning that they were going to uh, give out or going to take all the derelict buildings and renovate them and give most of the families And there's, let's be honest, there's a lot of money spent paying the hotels and the B&Bs, paying for emergency accommodation. That doesn't come cheap. Well, just to let your listeners know, the budget for 2011, oh, sorry, 2019, was 8.5 million. And we're after running over budget already and it'll be closer to 10 million, if not above. And that's just year. for emergency accommodation costs? That's just for uh, that's just for the homeless. That's not housing, no. That's yeah. for managing homeless in Cork. That'll build, build a lot of houses. And the budget for next year, Patricia, is thirteen point five. So that's an increase of five million euros in one year. Like that's a sixty percent, over sixty percent increase. So we're going from eight and a half million, actually. Less than eight and a half million in 2019 to 13.5 million in 2020. So, is, is that, that the council accepting that there's going to be more people in need of emergency accommodation next year than there is this year? Well, the one thing I would say is Cox City Council are trying to plan. Like, we have a very good homeless section in Cox City Council that work with families in the city and the county, right? Yeah. And what Cox City Council are trying to do now is they're planning. 
for next year, which which is something I welcome and I want because that shows that they're trying to they're trying to manage the problem the best way they can. But that's that's only the homeless section. Like for me, the simplest way to resolve this is to build houses or to renovate. Okay, talking of building houses, at the meeting, the city's head of housing said there are now. 1,017 social and affordable housing units under construction and he said that's more than any other local authority. That to me looks like they're doing their best. Is, are see, they? They're doing brilliant work. Okay. And, like, and that's the one thing I want to say is Cork City Council's housing section is, is putting in a tremendous effort. But the problem, Patricia, for your listeners is in 2014, only one house is built in Cork. Yeah, we're, we're playing catch-up. So, and the problem is, even though there's a thousand houses under construction, it, took, it could take three or four years to deliver those houses. So that only might, might be 250, 300 houses a year. No, It's rapid-build, isn't it? It's rapid-build housing. People can't no, wait not, around. Uh, no, but that's not what we're building. We're building normal houses. And the problem with the government is, Everything has to go up to the Department of Environment in Dublin to be sanctioned. And, like, the, the red tape and the bureaucracy around trying to build a house on a housing estate, it takes years. And that's one of the big problems. Like, what I'm looking for is, like, in 2011, I, Patricia, I wanted to build 800 houses in the old Whitechurch Road, social and affordable and private rented and affordable rents. We were blocked at the time by Phil Hogan. Now we're trying to do that eight years later. And it'll take about eight years to deliver them, if not more. I know, so it's a, it's a, because I know, again, going back to the meeting, the the old CMP dairy site, that's, yeah. been, that's been rezoned. Uh, how many houses do you expect to be built on a, on a site that size? But I, I'm not sure. But then yeah, it's well, how, long the, how long will that take? I, I would say, Patricia, four years. And that's, that'll be very Yeah, those families, those teenagers that I'm talking about who are embarrassed to tell their friends that they're living in a local hotel, they'll have left school by the time those houses are built. And you see, w- w- like the question must be asked then is, how many of them kids will have issues in, when they come out? How many of those kids will get involved in, will fall out of school early, will not get involved with community groups? Like, th- these kids are now living in communities where they have no friends, because in the B&Bs, in the hotels, they're not building relationships with uh, children or peers their own age. Like we could have fierce social problems as a no, result of no. uh, And it's, it's, a, it's a little bit of the unknown because we've never had a situation this bad when it comes to homelessness that we don't know what the long-term effect is going to be. So you are right, we could be storing up huge, huge problems um, for the future. The former Vita Cortex site, is there talks of that getting approval for housing? There is. But But again, it's just all planning, 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 planning. The problem, Patricia, is you're talking years. Yeah. You see, right now at this minute, we have 102 sites, properties in Cork City that are derelict and we have more in every town in Cork County. My proposal is like, according to the government's own legislation, that any property that's derelict for over two years, the council or the local authority should compulsory purchase. 
And what I'm looking for is for that to happen, for them then to be renovated. So instead of talking four or five years, you could be talking six or seven months mm. to have a property owned and a family put in. Like where I am now in, in Cathedral Road, in Blackpool, in Shannon Street, in Blarney Street, in Barrett Street, there are dozens of properties, houses, which are boarded up right now. And to me, that's immoral. I, and I've been on to the council, I want them. You see, and some of them are people who've passed away and the, the title deeds of the house or there's no family there. or like you, Some of them are landlords that, that are just rogue landlords, but some of them are very complex reasons. And like there's, there's an old butcher's in Blair Street that has been idle for 24 years. Oh, okay. No, it was a house and it was turned into a butcher's. No, how can it be? How can it be morally right that in the area that's crying out for housing, you have a property that's idle over twenty years? And is it derelict? Yes. And does anybody know who owns it? That's the thing. I'm trying to get people. I want the council to see who owns it, and if there's no one who owns it, to take over the property. And if people come back in years to come and say that was my great great grandmother's property that we would pay him the market value for it when we took it mm. and we have the same issue there, there are dozens of properties and they are there well they're dotted all over the city and county there probably isn't and, isn't a, ta- a town you wouldn't get you wouldn't be able to point out similar properties and can you imagine patricia if we were able to get all those properties renovated and rented out yeah. we would get hundreds of families out of homeless accommodation and off the housing list and, and then the knock-on would be those families would be paying rent to the council. The council wouldn't be paying out all the money that they're paying on emergency accommodation. It's a no-brainer. It would be financially beneficial to the council. The problem, no, the problem, no, Patricia. I'm saying it's a no-brainer, and you're saying it's a no-brainer. But why won't the government give Cork City Council and Cork County Council the resources to do it? Yeah. It's it's back to that. It's back to that. All right, uh, Thomas, just before I let you go, uh, just on a different topic, you're highlighting an issue with Grona Brawher Credit Union and the death grant that they pay out. What What's the issue there? There's a, there's a huge issue now for, and this, this will affect all credit unions that have a death grant. Currently, if you're a member of, uh, of Grona Brawher Credit Union, yeah. there's a, a death grant of €4,000 if you're a member who dies. No, Granovar Credit Union have 13,500 adult members. Right. And what happened was the Central Bank brought up new uh, rules and regulations earlier on in the year, which required Granovar Credit Union to write to all the members and ask the members to reapply for the debt grant. And the new debt grant they got was only 3,250, and it would cost the person 33 euros a year, which to me is reasonable. Is, is a yeah, it's, 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 it's like, an, like paying an insurance policy. Yes. Yeah. But what happened was the central bank stating that you need 50% uptake and credit union only got 36. And, this, and as a result, they're not going ahead with the desk grant anymore. But the problem is, Patricia, a lot of people, especially older people, wouldn't have any life insurance a lot of them are depending on that money to bury them so that their families will have some money to bury them. Absolutely. You talk to older people and when you ask them about credit union membership, they'll they'll all say one of the advantages is my money for my funeral will be there in the death grant that they they pay out. 
And the thing about it now, Patricia, is because different credit unions have different start dates, yeah. that's is only affecting Grand Yeah, and don't different December. credit unions operate differently as well because they're all autonomous. They all do their own thing in, in some regards, particularly with regard well, to this, don't they? Yes, they do. And what, what could happen now is credit unions right across Cox City and County might start providing a debt grant. And to me, uh, I, I, I've asked Grand Abraha to extend the date and to also do some press and publicity to encourage the members to sign up because people, the amount of people, over 100 people have contacted me since last Thursday, really upset that uh, the death grant has been uh, stopped and people are saying that come the 1st of December they have no coverage. Like I was talking to a lady yesterday, 84 years of age, yeah. living in Grand Abraha and uh, the woman was just distraught. She was distraught that come the 1st of December that she'll have no cover and And the unfortunate thing is uh, Thomas older people worry about where's the money going to come from for for their funeral they They do yeah they do they do they do you know whereas they're dead and gone and they shouldn't have to be even thinking about it it'll be somebody else's problem but they don't want to leave that problem behind for anybody else and it's going to be left behind you know and the other issue was there used to be a government uh, death grant that was abolished about three years ago, maybe four years ago, in the budget. The bereavement so, grant, yeah. Yes. So is, that, that, is that still gone? Yes. Is it okay? Yeah. yeah. So as far as I know, no, any support over there for people, like, uh, like I have life insurance for you. Wife has life insurance. A lot of us have. A lot of people have life insurance. Like I spoke to another lady last night on Baker's Road. There's four in her family, and they all have life insurance. But she was worried about her mother and father because I had been the conversation Sunday at the dinner table. What are they going to do? Uh, I actually I met one man yesterday who actually went up and closed his account in the credit union uh, in protest over it after being in the credit union over sixty years. But are we? But are, is he wrong to be blaming Grona Broher Credit Union? I mean, these are rules and regulations that are being set by the central bank. Now, their, their well, hands for, are tied. Well, first of all, I think what the central bank have done is crazy because if you've been a member of a credit union for 40 or 50 years or 60 years or even five, one year and you, you've paid into this, you should be allowed just roll over like you would do with your car insurance or your house insurance, right? Yeah. L- like, if, if you don't respond to your car insurance company or your house insurance company, your policy will roll over. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. This, this should be a load happen with the death insurance or the death grant. And then when new members join, they should have been given the option of to opt in or opt out. Yeah, but, but leave the, but the existing ones. Because I'm sure as well, Thomas, there will be a cohort of people not listening to this discussion, haven't heard anything about it, even though Gronabroho Credit Union no doubt have written uh, to all the members probably more than once. But people have a tendency to see letters like that and they don't read them or they don't understand them. Well, I, I, met a, I met a very well-educated young man at the weekend and he said when he saw the letter, he read the first two lines and he thought it was one of these offers for care loans or holiday and loans. And he put it in the bin. And he put it in the bin. Yeah, and yeah. he was ringing me, giving me out. He was, he was saying that the credit union should have advertised this properly. 
Like, Grand Rock had a student do unbelievable work with schools and sporting organisations, and I'm really proud to be a member of them. But I think you're falling down here. And I've actually put in a request to the, to the manager, the chief executive, and to the... Just for, uh, and to the management committee, looking for them to extend it by another two weeks. To give people a chance. Because you say because that you're at thir- they're at 36% have signed up and they need to get it to 50% in order to operate yes. it. Okay. And the thing is, people have gone up to sign up since I highlighted this issue last okay. week. Okay. And they've been told no. But the big problem here, Patricia, is a lot of the 36% who did sign up think they have cover now. And they won't have. And they don't. And they won't have. Okay, all right. And by the way, we did contact Gronabraher Credit Union, but they haven't come back to us as of yet. If we get anything from them, uh, we certainly will bring it to you. Uh, Thomas, in the meantime, thank you for that. And uh, thank thanks you, uh, for joining us on the programme. That is uh, Cork City Councillor uh, Thomas Schools. And I've just been told that there is, we're getting calls in about no electricity in Carrigaline. We've checked with the ESB networks and uh, they are aware of the problem. And they say that electricity is expected to be restored within the next hour if you're listening to us in Tonakilty and the lights are out at the moment they'll be back to you in about an hour Hi, Nick Richards here from C103's Afternoon Show. Santa's on his way and he wants to talk to Cork kids Ho, ho, ho I just can't wait to talk to you all on Cork's greatest hits, C103 The countdown to the big day is on so don't miss your chance to talk to the big man himself. It's so easy. Simply go to c103.ie and fill out the special entry form for your chance to get a Christmas call from Santa. With World of Wonder, Blackpool and Mallow. For toys that spark imagination and joy. Worldofwonder.ie Get ready for Santa's Christmas calls. I could be talking to you with Nick Richards in the afternoon only on C103. Our discussion with the Vintners Federation. Really interested to hear from the Vintners as to is there any appetite out there for pubs to open on uh, Christmas Day because it can still work out in a huge number of calls and texts and a mixed, mixed reaction. Some people are violently against the idea of a pub to even dare consider opening on Christmas Day but others are saying no, there, there could be merit in it and it's, it's an issue that we need to be discuss, discussing. Every Friday we're counting down to the weekend, the weekend. by turning up the feel good. C103's Feel Good Friday brings you six hours of Feel Good Greatest Hits. Join Nick Richards from 1 and Martina O'Donoghue from 4 as we get you weekend ready. Weekend ready. Turning up the Feel Good for Cork. For Cork. Every Friday from 1. Feel Good Friday, only on C103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. We were discussing housing and the lack of affordable and social housing in Cork City and County in the last hour. And one of the big problems while there's planning in place and the councillor talking about, you know, changing the zoning on certain land so that they can build housing. The problem is they have to physically build the structures. And we can be talking four years before there will be keys ready to be handed over. And we have families living in emergency accommodation that really can't and don't want to wait that long. Somebody is saying, Patricia, log cabins. And they've sent um, a picture on WhatsApp of fantastic log cabins from a company called Log Cabins Cork. They really do look gorgeous. This listener says log cabins will be a perfect solution for the shortage of accommodation in Cork. They're affordable and they're quick to install. 
That's what we need. We need rapid build housing to solve the problem at the moment. Thank you for that. And Marion by text. This is reacting to when I was talking about that you've got children who are embarrassed to be living in emergency accommodation. Teenagers in particular find it very difficult to tell their friends that they're for whatever reason they're out of the home that they were living in and that they're now living in a local hotel and they're in fear that their friends will find out about it. Marion says, I don't want to be mean here in all of this, but I'd rather be in a hotel than be to be out sleeping under the stars in the open if I was homeless. There's nothing to be ashamed of, says Marion. Absolutely. And you're much, you know, you've got some sort of comfort when you're staying in a hotel than to be homeless but I think it's because it's teenagers and it's children and embarrassment and you know the way what children are like and then there's bullying and what other kids are going to say. I can actually understand. I, there is no reason for them to be ashamed and it's not their fault and it's not their parents' fault but I can understand why certainly any of the teenagers that we've, we've spoken to I can understand why they go down that line of just being so em- embarrassed about it all. It's just I suppose part of being a teenager as well. 1850 Now this week on the programme we've been discussing is there a right time to put up Christmas decorations and are some households simply putting up the tree too early? That discussion prompted Mike, one of our listeners, to suggest that following the opening of pubs on Good Friday, is it now time to open the pubs and bars on Christmas Day? So we've invited Michael O'Sullivan of the Cork Vintners Association to join us to see if there's any appetite for this suggestion. Good morning to you, Michael. Good morning, Patricia. And and you're welcome. Has there ever been a discussion around opening pubs on Christmas Day? No. Um, look, at. Uh all our vintners' meetings up and down the country, um, and especially here in Cork around the county, there has never been any discussion on Christmas Day opening. There's no appetite for it. Um, look, I suppose we work hard enough now, 364 days of the year. Um, Christmas Day is a special time. It's a family day, and it has never been suggested to open it, uh, to open any bars on, on Christmas Day. But um, it was very different when it was Good Friday. But I mean, publicans wanted to open on Good Friday. Yeah, look, Good, Good Friday is different, I suppose. Uh, look, the history of Good Friday and how it came about in 2009, there was a suggestion. It actually started here in Cork. Um, um, about opening on Good Friday. Um, our Kerry colleagues then supported it and it went to our national AGM in 2010. And that's where the ball started on opening on Good Friday. Uh, Good Friday is different in that it fell, it, it obviously falls at Easter time. Um, and Easter is really the start of the tourism uh, season. Mm. And people were around, and look, Ireland was changing, and I know you'll say Ireland is changing as well for Christmas, but the tourists were here in 2009, 10 after the recession. Tourism was seen as a big driver to get people back to work and getting uh, people out, and tourism became a very big industry for Ireland in that time. So it was, I suppose, it became out of necessity that uh, the powers that be in Dublin, the the government of the time, uh, kind of, we, we were lucky that we had a senator, a former president of the Vintners Federation, um, a senator at the time, Senator Billy Lawless, and he brought the white paper on it. And like, as you can imagine, from 2009, it took until 2017 to get that legislation changed. So even if we were to... Um, pursue or if there was an appetite there which there isn't I will say um, for Christmas Day opening it, t- 
takes a long process mm. in getting it done. So, um, and and I, I, there wasn't a year went by. I would say when pubs clo- when the when the pubs were closed that we didn't get calls in here to the program of people saying that they saw tourists wandering around, you know, knocking on pub doors, couldn't quite understand why the pubs were closed. Yes, it it, it was, and look, I suppose one of the look, there was two big instances I think that changed Good Friday. Number one was the big rugby match in Limerick, Munster and Leinster. I remember as well. Um, and that kind of when the judge in Limerick gave a special uh, exemption for the pubs to open and they saw uh, the potential of it. But I think the bigger one was there was an Ireland soccer match in the Aviva in Dublin on a Good Friday and the pubs in Dublin couldn't open. And I think it was the Swiss, uh, Switzerland were here at the time and they brought over 10,000 fans to the match and there was nothing for them to do on Good Friday. They couldn't go anywhere. Some were staying in hotels, okay. They were able to get food and um, and a few drinks, but the majority were staying in guest houses, etc., and they couldn't. And I think that was a real eye-opener for the Good Friday um, with the volume of people that were coming in. Then we had the cruise liners coming into Cork, which is another big one. And Ireland was changing at that time, 2010, 11, 12, 13, and that... Uh, I suppose that really opened the door for Good Friday to open uh, with the tourist aspect. We don't have that at Christmas at Christmas time. There's, uh, look, I suppose, everybody wants to be home with their own family, especially Christmas Day. So, like, um, pubs are open Christmas Eve. People enjoy, I suppose, going to traditional mass, uh, Christmas Day mass, Christmas Eve evening, going to the local pub, having one or two drinks, going home and enjoying the day with their own family. Yeah, I'm I'm surprised though, Michael, at the number of people who were contacting us talking about loneliness and talking about how they find the day very boring and they'd love the idea of going for a few hours. Some are saying staggered hours, but then we're also hearing from people who work in the in the bar trade who definitely don't want to be working on that day. But do you think if pubs were to open, there would be customers? I'm sure there would, uh, Patricia, because, look, I suppose now with rural isolation, um, look, I suppose I'm a big opponent of it. The, the, um, the, it's, we're now one year since the new drink driving legislation came in, and it has caused, like, we hear it right across the country, the amount of people um, that used to come to the local pub, have one or two drinks, game of cards, some would even have tea and coffee and, and whatever, maybe have one drink, um, they're just so afraid of the morning after effect of it that it has caused major rural, uh, major rural isolation. Um, and if the bars were open on Christmas Day when people are home uh, for to celebrate with their family, they would go down to the bar for an hour or two. But like the publicans and the staff, like uh, they want their day as well. Mm. It's the only day that they are closed to spend time with their own families because while. If a bar only opens for two hours or three hours, they're in there probably, you know, half an hour, an hour beforehand, and they're definitely there an hour, an hour and a half Cleaning up, cleaning yeah. Up. It isn't just so the two hours. It's, yeah. just, it's yeah. not just the two hours. So, like, okay. that's, that's five or six hours gone out of that day. That's only the... It's the only day of the year now that we are closed. Every other bar, every bar in the country can open the other 364 days. Even though I have to say, we have a number of bars, certainly in the North Cork area, who opted not to open on Good Friday. They keep up the, 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 the tradition. tradition. And yeah. again, you can do that. That's, that's within, within the bars. And, and that's totally... Look, every publican has the, the choice of what days they want to open and what days they don't want to open. But I suppose the, the Good Friday opening was really to facilitate um, the tourists and yeah. um, people that were coming into the country. Now, I'll be honest, look, I, I'm in Cork City. It, it, it's 
it's just another day in Cork City and it is in Dublin and Limerick. Um, life just goes on. It wasn't that there was queues out the door or anything. <laughs> it's just that it made life a lot easier. Um, tourists coming in and like, especially Holy Thursday before, you used to be explaining to them, look, unfortunately, everywhere will be closed tomorrow. Bars, restaurants, um, the majority of them used to close as well on Good Friday. So now that everything is open, it's just another day. It, it just passes on. But as I said, uh, at any of the vintners' meetings, there there has never been a call or there's never been an appetite so far. Maybe in 20 years or something. It, it might change. It might change. But yeah, it present, might change. Okay. At the present time. All I right. And, and, and before we let you go, uh, Michael, Lorraine and Douglas wonders, it, it, the 12 pubs of Christmas, is that still going? She remembers it being a messy affair a few years ago in her college days. <laughs> Yes, is, is that still popular? It is, it's still going. It'll be, uh, I suppose, look, the Christmas parties in Cork City kind of started last weekend. They'll be, I suppose, getting into bigger events this weekend and from here to, to Christmas. Um, I suppose the, the 12 pubs will really start, I suppose, for the college students when they finish the exams. We'll have a couple of days of it. But then uh, the majority of it will be when people come home from overseas meeting up that they'll have a, a go at doing the 12 pubs. Um, you don't have to have an alcoholic drink in every pub folks you don't, so just and it highly recommended that you don't because yeah. look we see a lot of them it's 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 just not good like uh, as publicans we don't endorse it lots of pubs don't um don't uh, like to see it coming because people come in um, I suppose the biggest thing that it causes, which people don't realize is disruption because people come in they're playing games, they're blowing whistles. When the whistle blows, they move on to the next bar. It's upsetting the customers that are already there. Um, and you can have, normally when they do 12 pubs, there's normally gangs of 10, 12 of them, uh, people, and like they come into the bar and they, um, they, they're, they're joyous, I suppose. It's a joyful time of year, but they do cause disruptions to the others. So like, um, it's, it's probably not the best practice. And oh, no. we, we don't encourage it. Yeah, rem- remember others who are out enjoying themselves as well. All right, Michael, listen, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme. Thank you, Patricia. Good morning to you. That is Michael O'Donovan, uh, who is the chairperson of the Cork Vintners Association. So it d- certainly doesn't look like the publicans in any way want pubs to open on uh, Christmas Day. We have a lot, a really a huge amount of commentary uh, in on this. Can I just bring you one or two of them? There's one or, or two in particular that um, stand out in commentary in one listener is there a name on this let me go to the end Catherine thank you Catherine for putting your name on your WhatsApp I think it's safe enough Patricia to say you can go back to midnight mass at Christmas at midnight as I think drunk or sober they don't go now to Mass anymore. I have lovely memories of my brothers and sisters returning from the United Kingdom and all of us going to Midnight Mass with our mam and dad who both now have gone to heaven. I do remember my brother sleeping during Mass after just coming off the boat. I should help me, he was probably exhausted. My poor mother was disgusted. Lovely, happy memories was at Mass last Sunday and what a sad sight with so few there. I remember Christmas morning taking my crew carrying their Santa doll or Santa truck with them and meeting up with friends and family at the crib and nobody was in a hurry to go home. All my children have grown up and two of them are actually now living in Melbourne. I'm delighted to report the four of them all attend Mass on Christmas morning. It's more than religion. It's family and it's goodwill to all men. If parents take babies to the church to ask for them to be christened and then they take them back to receive the sacraments they should at least take them to Mass on Sundays it's good for both parents and children to spend that one hour in the week with them instead of turning up on the day of the communion of the confirmation and children just waiting on cards to see how much money is in them says uh, Catherine 
Yeah, times have certainly changed, but wonderful. You've, you've painted a lovely picture, though, of your memories, Catherine, of uh, Midnight Mass growing up. And somebody who paints a rather sad picture of what it would be like if pubs opened on Christmas Day is a texture. There's, there's no name on this, but just says, Hi, Trish, I'm in my early 40s. Uh, and I, to this day, hate the idea of Christmas, all for the simple reason of drink. My dad used to have a friend who owned a pub. So when I was very young, it was drink, drink and more drink, especially around Christmas. It was drink and then the fighting would start. To this day, if you say boo to me around Christmas, I'll just burst into tears. I am so scared of fighting kicking off. I have three children of my own and I spend Christmas every year at my parents' house where we have a great time, but I will never forget the Christmases of my childhood and all the tears that I cried. So if pubs opened, it would make Christmas so much harder for a lot of children today. And to me, that's what Christmas is all about. Christmas is for kids to have fun. What uh, what I never really had. Thanking you. Keep up the good work. Isn't that really sad? Goodness me. Horrible memories of Christmas that still somebody in their early 40s raising her own family and you sound like you have a lovely Christmas with your own children but that fear factor and that fight or flight because of the memories of a young child and a young child witnessing that kind of messiness with drink. Drink can be great in moderation and we can all get in good form and we can all have a laugh and a sing song and it can be wonderful and I would have I would have lovely memories of growing up of drinks being served around Christmas but it was all done there was nobody falling around the place drunk it was just all a very happy occasion you know a nice relaxed occasion and they are the kind of memories that we need to carry with us from childhood into adulthood not somebody living in their early 40s and as soon as there's any kind of a raised voice or even in jest somebody says something it's just putting the fear of God in this woman that she ends up in tears that's really really sad my heart goes out to you but keep making the good memories for your children and for yourself replace those bad memories with the good memories and hopefully one day you'll you'll never those awful memories will fade They'll never go away, but hopefully they will fade for you. But thank you for opening up with your text to 0862 103 103. C103 Jobs. College, now enrolling for Christmas Junior and Leaving Certificate Revision courses. Your success is built on their experience. See hewittcollege.ie. An experienced hotel accountant is wanted. That's for the Clonakilty Park Hotel. While a labourer is wanted for general groundworks. That's to work in Cork City. Childbinder wanted to work in Whelan Newmarket for school-going children aged seven and four. And a full-time temporary office administrator is wanted for work in Bandon. You'll find all the details and more job opportunities by going online now. Just go to c103.ie forward slash jobs for more. This is C103. A Cork band once asked Where's me jumper? Now C103 is asking it too. Where's me Cork Simon Christmas jumper? Every year, thousands of people here in Cork get together to help fight homelessness by wearing a Christmas jumper to work, school or anywhere. Don't make a song and dance about it. Simply get your fundraising pack now at CorkSimon.ie. The Cork Simon Christmas Jumper Day. It's time to wear your jumper. With C103. This is the Cork Today replay on C103. 
On Monday's programme, I mentioned the three Irish brothers who all died while serving in the Canadian Air Force during the Second World War were remembered at a memorial service last weekend in Belgium. The three Sheehan brothers were the sons of James and Mary Ellen Sheehan, who had a bakery business in Formoy. The, comm- the commemoration was organised by Dennis Buckley, who was international president of the Irish in Europe Association, who joins me this morning from Brussels. Good morning to you, Dennis. Good morning, Patricia. And you are, you're very welcome to the programme. When and how did you first come across the story of the Sheehan brothers? I came across the story when I read an article in the Irish Examiner back in April of this year. And it, it, we read these articles all the time, but it has particular significance for us this year, and it drew my attention. This year, we in Brussels organised the Brussels St. Patrick's Day Parade of the Nations and Regions, and our theme for this year was the Irish-Canadian diaspora relationship. And we had, as our parade, Grand Marshal George Brown, and we said we were going to do three projects. One was to nominate a Grand Marshal from the Canadian-Irish community. Two was a bilingual communication club, French and English, Maple Leaf Toastmaster. And the third was to do something related, in relationship to the Irish-Canadian involvement in the first World War. And when I saw this article, straight away I could see this would be the basis of our annual Irish in Europe Remembrance Saturday commemoration. This year we had our ninth commemoration. Okay. We started Remember Saturday due to, as, as opposed to Remember Sunday, a distinctive Irish commemoration to remember all Irish who died in all wars and conflicts. And, so sa- and, sadly, and sadly, there were so many of them. Going back to the Sheehan boys, they were all born in Formoy. What, what do we know of their early years in Formoy? What we know is that their father was a baker and confectioner and he's, their mother was from County Carly but had run a very successful business what is now Pier Square, was Queen Square in Formoy. But we also know, I did further research is it was also apparently in 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 King Street, what is now McCurtain Street. It was a James Sheen Baker. So either he progressed from McCurtain Street to Pier Square or vice versa in the records because this nineteen hundred and eleven census states he was at uh Queen Square. Okay, but, but he might have he might have moved and then I the the family yes. uh, the family all then emigrated to Canada, and the three boys that we're talking about today they, they they wouldn't even have been teenagers. Do we know why the family emigrated to Canada? I think the reason why they emigrated was due to economic circumstances and turmoil that existed around Ireland after the war independence after the the civil war. You must remember that um, the British Army were in Formoy for a long time. It was major income for the whole town for over 100 years. And yeah. then from the, the First World War, supply, food, grain and horse from this region. So to go, the shift from then, when the, the, most of the barracks were burnt in Formoy, a lot of buildings were destroyed. And I also noticed there was a major storm in Formoy after the, the First World War that did massive havoc which I now realise this would have impacted on the economy on Fomoy at the time and the withdrawal of the British Army and, uh, the, and, and, and of course the consequences of the civil war. Lots of Irish left at this period because of this they, and, and made major 
because of what happened in the early 1920s. So James the dad, I, James the dad went first, I think with the eldest boy, wasn't it? He, he went to Canada the, the to kind son, of set themselves correct. up. That's correct. And then there was the, 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 then there was Mary Ellen. She went with the, the remainder of the children. In, on 1926, they sailed out of Cove from the SS Minnedosa and their children at that time was Thomas, 19, Maureen, 18, Joseph, 16, Michael, 11 years, Edward, 9 years, Francis, 7 years, Henry, 4 years. Big family. Big family. Big and family. then they... Eight years. Yes. They did well in Canada. They did look, they did read, they ran a business, their eldest children were in, in not they were in reasonably good jobs. They could have done better, but this was, this was just before the, the Second World War. And what I have to say is, we're talking about the three Sheen brothers that died. We actually, in fact, we are going to remember all five Sheen brothers now because there are two more brothers who served in the, the Canadian Defence Forces. One was in the Infantry, Canadian Scottish Regiment, and the other was in the in the Navy. Thomas was in the Canadian Scottish and Michael was in the HMS CS Laurier. So there were five brothers in the family. Now think of five, one family with five brothers. Think of the five Sullivans yeah. that died with the American Yeah, the sa- that Saving Private Ryan is now based on. Yeah. This, is, this story is actually much bigger than Saving Private Ryan and see, and the five Sullivans. It, it has because it's about Irish emigration, Irish diaspora families. Mm-hmm. That yeah. joined different armies. And, and three young men uh, who sadly didn't come home. What are the details of how the brothers died? They, they, the three brothers were all with the Canadian Air Force. Okay. They, they Harry died, was a, was a bomber, he was a air gunner, and he was shot down by the Luftwaffe on a night flight over Nederland in the Netherlands. Okay. So that he was, was the first to die. He was the first to die. Twenty-four. And, he, and then, yeah, and then Frank was on a Lancaster air gunner. He died the second of October forty-three, and he was in a town near Oberhaken, and he's buried in Dernbach Cemetery. He was twenty-six. And of course, and then Edward was die was twenty-eight um, of April nineteen forty-four. He was shot down over over Belgium and Rousseau Grenwick. And he's the person that's buried in Haverley Cemetery. So there's a connection with three different countries over here, with Belgium, the Netherlands, and Germany. And by the way, Ed, we, Ed, Edward was was Edward the only of the three brothers who was married? Because Edward left behind a widow and yes. and a child that he never saw. That, that's correct. Well, uh, there's a, there's a love story here. Edward arrived in the UK. I don't have the exact dates now in front of me. And then he met up with Mary Webb and he married her in the UK. And um, we don't know if she's any relation to the Webbs that were in Castletown Road or Ballyhooley. We don't know. We have to examine this. Was there a connection with the yeah, Webbs? Yeah, there could have been. There could have been. And is the child, his, is, was, was it a boy or a girl he had? It was a boy. A boy. Is that boy still alive? Michael. We don't know. We're trying to find out what has happened. Now, we, under these circumstances, you don't know what has happened. Uh, she was a, a young widow. Her, her, the, the child was born three months after his father died. Oh. So we're, 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 make, 
We're making contacts now with the family in in Canada. We have met up with a uh, Valerie McIntosh. We have met her, but I've, I'm aware of her, the daughter of Thomas, who was in the Canadian um, Canadian Scottish Regiment. Okay. And he did a lot, he did a lot of groundbreaking work trying to identify where the, the, how his brothers were buried and making sure that the records were kept correct, etc. On their details. But I we have yet to meet up with Valerie, but through the good offices of the Sun newspaper, Vancouver and the province, Denise Rhines, the journalist there, Irish pastor again, um, we now learn that if, if there's going to be a memorial in Formoy, they're going to travel over from Canada to Formoy. And that was going to be my next question. Do the Sheans, would the Sheans still have relatives living in Formoy? They, look, James Sheen must have relatives in Formoy. He and I think you know, they were deeply, at, at that time, practicing Catholic family. They were resourced. They went to the local church. They attended the local schools. But Edward Sheen's second name was Fanahan Sheen. You know Fanahan is St. Fanahan is the priest. Yeah, yeah, yeah St. Fanahan's College, so yeah. Tell, so something tells me the Sheen family came from the Mitchestown area because that was the custom in those days that you you remember the locality you came from. You did, from. you did. You're right, you're, you're spot on. So you're you're, a, you're spot a, on. Story, it's an, it's an incredible story. There's, the, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, an entire book, I think, Justine Edwards' story uh, alone. Yes, yes. Tell me about what there's happened a, last yes. Saturday, Dennis, uh, and describe the remembrance uh, ceremony that was held. Yes. La- last Saturday, we met at the... Irish New York remember Saturday we met at the Commonwealth Hipperly Commonwealth War Cemetery and our chairperson of the organizing committee Mary Jo Malarkey was the MC for the occasion we had two two key guests we had representing the Irish Defence Force just arrived in Brussels Brigadier General Gerard Buckley um, on, his, on his first week in, in Brussels and we also had the Deputy Mayor and Alderman Dirk Benzina of Leuven. As you may be aware, Leuven has a historic connection with Ireland since 1607 with the flights of the Earl. So we have this historic, the Haverley Cemetery is in the, the commune of, of um, Leuven. So this was the historic connection. And the commemoration so I, was at Edward's grave because that's where Edward is buried. The, it was that we had part of the commemoration at, at his grave. How we started off was we had Alexander's Fields read by George Brown, Parade Grand Marshal. He read Alexander's Fields. Then we had some more poems read by some guests and dignitaries. Then we moved to the central monument where we laid a laurel wreath in member of all Irish who died in all wars and conflicts. We had the last post, the revive. And then I gave... Um, a remembrance address, and in my remembrance address, I included um, an Irishman for an Irish airman foresees his death by William Barclay Yates, which I might add as well was read earlier in Irish by Sean O'Hagan from Limerick. Um, I think it was the first time it has ever been read in Irish, or this poem was read in Irish to commemorate this event. And then I referred to uh, the epithet of the grave of Edward Fannin Sheen, which, which says, reads, "Time passes, but love and memories remain." Well done, well done, and, and that's what that, and that's what these commemorations are about. They're about that right, we will so. never forget these people and what that's they did, and, and, I, and, and how they lost their, their lives. Uh, so all I of us could have you. a future.
Okay. No, but I, to, conclude, to conclude that, I think it's important to, to take from the lines of Kathleen Newhul and Yeats's poem. And this is going to be for all our Irish all who died in all conflicts. They shall be remembered forever. They shall be alive forever. They shall be speaking forever. The people shall hear them forever. Well done. OK, I'm over I'm over on time. I'm going to have to leave there. We'll keep in contact with you, uh, Dennis, particularly if we can find out anything more about the Sheehan family and Edward in, in particular. But we, we remember all of them today. But thank you okay. for joining us but, and talking to us on Patricia, the programme. Was, yeah. Just one thing, Patricia. Yeah. I want to wish you a very happy birthday for Friday for your 29 years <laughs> with the radio station. <laughs> thank you very much, um, Dennis. You're, you're originally a native of New Tupot House. That is correct. <laughs> All right, Dennis. I know, thank- I've heard you before. <laughs> thank you bye for bye. that. Bye bye. That is uh, Dennis Buckley joining us on the line from the, uh, Brussels, where he's the international president of the Irish uh, in Europe uh, Association. And yes, I'll be celebrating 29 years doing this programme. And that uh, anniversary comes up on Friday. Today on our bi-monthly feature with Awalia, the free service to help homeowners find a solution to their home mortgage arrears. We're going to do a recap on what solutions are. Are available. Joining me is John O'Callaghan, who's a personal insolvency practitioner, which is a PIP with KPMG. Good morning to you, John. Good morning. Uh, and, and John, I suppose firstly, just remind listeners what is a PIP and what your role is. Okay, a PIP is an independent professional who has been appointed by the Insolvency Service of Ireland under licence to provide assistance in settling debts in one of the insolvency, in in any of a number of insolvency solutions, such as a personal insolvency arrangement for secure debt, mortgages and stuff, or for unsecured debt, which is called DSA. So we work between the creditors and the debtor, the people in trouble, to find a solution for all of them. So you're like a mediator? We're a mediator. That would would be a very good word, yes. Um, Some people call us negotiators as well, but our job is to it's why the job works. You see, our job is independent of everybody. The banks get the best deal that they can find because we can go out and find the best deal. Mm. And the best deal for the debtor, the house owner, the person who's worried about the amassing credit card debt or whatever else. Our job is to go out and get the best deal for all people. And that's why these things work. And is it fair to say, John, that there is a solution for everyone? That's my experience, yes. Um, there's... There's a mathematical calculation that can be done for everybody to show the creditor how much they can hope to get. And it's a little bit of a matter of getting blood out of a stone, you yeah. know. Or you, 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 there comes a point where you can't get any more, mm. and our job is to, to, to show that, to realise by decent work with the debtor, working out what the income is, what the outgoings are, what must be paid. I mean, food, drink, of, you know, water, tea, coffee, etc., etc., all must be on the table. Light, heating. Kids, kids must go to school. If you need a car for work, you need a car. And so on it goes. All of these costs need to be calculated. Medical costs. Um, treatment for any sort of situation in regard to medical or related medical conditions. Everything needs to be taken into consideration. And there's good rules and laws about that. And once we do all of that, we can show the creditor what's left. And uh, that, that's it then. That's where the solution comes from. And in the majority of cases, people keep their homes or they at least end up still living in the house. Is that fair to say? That is also fair to say. The, there are situations where we 
have to look at a thing called mortgage to rent, where the house, the home, is absolutely retained. It's even retained with a better guarantee than some of us have on mortgages, or even if we don't have mortgages, they're retained under very, very good housing authority structures. The person does not move. They retain their house for 25 years, and there's a marginal rent agreed. The house is maintained. It's kept in good order. And there's no need whatsoever to consider moving or losing the connections one has with one's community. And that's the biggest fear, isn't it, for the majority of people when they get into debt with their mortgage? I'm going to lose the roof over my head. That is a huge fear. We've been, I've been doing this since the thing started, and uh, I've been doing this since 2013. And we have nobody that lost the roof over there. Well head. done, well done, well done. Not one. But what about the perception, John, that's out there that for that there's a write-off for those who just don't want to pay? There, there, there may be that perception. It's not the experience I've had. I could count on the hand on the fingers of one hand how many people I've had that really had that um, attitude or demeanour. The people I meet are at their wit's end. They're stressed to the limit. They're ill, many of them, because mm-hmm. of this stress. Mm-hmm. And, and that's, that's an illness I worry for because that, that's a kind of eat you away from the inside illness. And these people are not getting away lightly. We, we absolutely examine their income. They have been through the mill with every single lender, like it might be that they started with lender A who sold to the lender B and now they're with Vulture Fund C. And so on, it has gone. And that's no easy ride. And then they come to a pip, and we at least can take the worry away. But there's a good three months' work they must do. They must get valuations. The valuation must be agreed with the lender. We must check all their income, their outcoins, their medical, their expenses. Their We check everything. And then we work out what has to be paid. It's a six-year deal in the majority of cases. Some of them can be quicker. Some of them have a very straightforward realignment and that can be done, but that's like every procedure. Some of them are longer, some of them are yeah, shorter. Yeah, there'll be no you two know. the same. What is, what's it like working with vulture funds, by the way? They're, they're, um, they're very focused, I suppose, is the polite way to okay. say it. <laughs> they know what they've got. There's no way a vulture fund is out there thinking, and there is a perception, if I may talk about it this way. People... I've met, some of them very learned, have said, oh, the Vulture Fund bought that for 40%. So we'll give them 50 and job done. But that's not how anybody looks at it, and Vulture Funds know what they got into. When they buy a house or a mortgage, the asset they got is the value of the house. So that's important to know, because there is a misconception that I have a 300 grand mortgage and a 200 grand house, but the Vulture Fund got it for 150, so I'll do 150. You can't do that because the house is worth two. Mm. The, the central focus of a Vulture Fund, and if we realize what they actually are, they're a grouping of people, who a small grouping of people, who are extremely intelligent, who have got an economic type, background, who've got a financial background, who know the value of, of every asset that they've acquired, who know the potential return from an average portfolio. They're really clever. But because they're clever, they can also see the value of what a PIP does. Because if they've done their maths right, their maths should match, match the maths 
done by the PIP. Yeah, yeah. If they say the house is worth 200 and the house is worth 200, well, that's what they're going to settle for. The mortgage might be three or 400. We know it's not, it's not imaginary stuff. It's not bar stool, back of the fag packet stuff. This is actual work where we assess and we present correct assessments. And vulture funds accept those when the assessments are correct. Okay, you mentioned two things there. You spoke about debt settlement arrangement, a DSA, and then there's a personal insolvency arrangement, a PIA. Talk to me about the difference between the two. Well, the fundamental difference between the two is that a PIA, a personal insolvency arrangement, incorporates what we call secured debt. Now, typical secured debt that people are familiar with is their mortgage. They have essentially given away their home, the land, the deeds, to get the mortgage, the money. That's the mortgage deed. That's what happened. So whoever the bank is, they own that asset. And they won't give that asset back till the mortgage is cleared. They're, that's a secure debt, and that's, that's how the security was put in place. There are other forms of secure debt, like guarantees and stuff, but the predominant one we deal with are mortgages. So that's a PIA. And in a PIA, we work on a six-year term on average to settle the mortgage into a, a helped a, a, a monitored repayment structure that may continue beyond the six years. It can, usually continues up to age 70 or whatever the term needs to be. And then the unsecured debts, the ones that aren't on the mortgage, debts like credit cards and overdrafts and credit union loans and, you know, store credit and things like that, they get some contribution through the period of the six years. And at the end of the six years, all of those debts, apart from the mortgage, are whatever's left are deemed written off. So you finish a PIA with a restructured mortgage with just a mortgage payment to make. And, and all, no your other, other, all your other debts gone. All their debts gone. A DSA, in comparison, is equally to some people, uh, and, and people have various different opinions. But when one is in pain with debt, you, you can't look at someone and say, they owe a million, they must be in terrible pain, I owe 40 grand that I can't pay. I, I, I shouldn't even worry about it, but I do every day. And, and that, that's not a comparison. You, you can't tell somebody in difficulty with debt that 40 grand is insignificant. Yeah, yeah. And like one of the worst cases I ever met was a, was a young lady who had 38,000 of debt. And she was on the border of self-harming. She was 38 outside of the mortgage. This was she the had no mortgage. She was in rental situation. She had deemed herself to be a failure. She was so caught up with the pressure coming on to pay the five grand to this guy and the 10 grand to that bank and the 10 grand to that credit card. And the phone calls were happening daily. And she was absolutely demented. Wow. Wow. On 38,000. And that's the sort of thing we fix in a DSA. Okay. All right, so that's the difference to the DSA and the PIA. But the message to get out to everybody is help is available. There are solutions and you need to look for help sooner rather than later. We've been emphasising that all the times on this feature. Sooner the better, yeah. All right, John. Listen, thank you for that and thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you so much. That is uh, John O'Callaghan, who is a PIP with KPMG. And of course, you can contact uh, Walia via MABS on 0761 072. 
0700-0761-072-000. Please call them. Help is available. And I'm very sad to announce uh, this is just breaking on the news wires and no doubt there'll be more about it in the news at 12 midday that the death has been announced of the actor and comedian Neil Tobin. He died in Dublin earlier today after a long uh, illness. May he rest in peace, the late great Neil Tobin. We're going to take a break. We have news at 12 midday on the way. This Sunday evening, we flick the switch. Join C103 Cork as we turn on Cork's Christmas lights with Cork City Council. It's going to be the biggest ever switch-on party on Patrick Street with the Academy of Popular Music, Cork Deaf Choir, the C103 Street Fleet, Santa Claus and more. Join us for the switching on of Cork's Christmas lights this Sunday at 7.15pm with The Echo and C103. You're listening to Cork Today on Replay. Phone and text lines are currently closed. As we announced just before News at 12 and it was followed up on the News at 12 with Barry. The death has sadly been announced of the actor and comedian Neil Tobin and he died in Dublin earlier uh, this morning after a long uh, illness. Even though he had been battling a long illness, he was working right up until last year. He appeared in the Irish short film Remains. That would have been his last part. And of course, his film career saw him play in a rare, uh, an array of very memorable characters, uh, including Tom Cruise's father in Far and Away. And I was just chatting to John Paul while the news uh, was on. And I remember many years ago having Neil Tobin in studio. What started off as a very rocky interview, and I won't get into why, but he eventually settled down. And the reason that he settled down was a question that I put to him about that movie Far and Away where he played Tom Cruise's father and he's just he smiled and his eyes lit up and then we cruised into pardon the pun a wonderful interview after that he also played the judge in Veronica Geerham who played a Pochine maker in Pochine and of course the Islander Sean alongside Pierce Brosnan in The Nephew and then of course he starred in a whole host of TV shows he was in The Clinic he was in The Ballroom of Romance he was excellent in that Bride said Revisited I don't remember him in that but he's in that as well as well as King of the Castle and uh, Frankie Starlet he was predeceased by his wife Judy and he is survived by his children and grandchildren and we pass on our deepest, deepest sympathies to his children and his grandchildren. He was born in Cork City in 1929 and only last week he appeared on the TV with all the remembrances that were going on for Gay Byrne. And there was a clip, you may have seen this in some of the tribute shows to Gay Byrne. Neil uh, Tobin joined Gay Byrne on The Late Late Show in 1982 and that was The Late Late Show that was broadcast live from the Cork Opera House and it was one of Gay Byrne's favourite Late Late Shows. And on that particular night, he spoke about Cork and he spoke about the Cork accent. And here's a, a little piece of Neil Tobin on The Late Late Show, live from the Cork Opera House in 1982. Let's start with Neil Tobin down the far end. Noble call, as it were. Now, He's been to Cork a few times. He has, he has. He's, he's right enough. No, right enough. Now, Neil, they, they, they say, and we've often been told, that Cork people have a particular sense of humour, a particular biting wit. You've studied humour from all over the world in the course of your work. Is this true? Well, I don't know, because tell you the truth, I'm flared out at the <laughs> Before he's gone. I'm flared out because I'm rehearsing all day. 
And you're going to ask me what I'm laughing? Oh, what are you rehearsing all day? Me cock accent. <laughs> because I left there about 19... Um, yes, 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 yes. The bore. To, uh, to get back to your question um, about this business of a peculiar... Well, they say that about every town in the world. And, of course, oh, yeah. it is just not true, except, of course, in the case of Cork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there is, uh, what I think, there is one very distinctive thing, and that is uh, a great uh, ability to cut you down to size. Mm -hmm. It happened you, by. <laughs> it did, it did, it did. But, uh, it happened, Alan Wicker? Uh, <laughs> it, can, it can happen, and, and I know one example of this. It, generally, the way is to, you, to, to get you to agree with a series of propositions that you don't really agree with at all, and then when you agree, they shoot you down. And my own favourite example was on a Stephen's morning in a pub in Cork, and there was uh, a man, he's there, and he's having a little cure-alike, you know, and she's not going down too well, and not going up too well, I love you. <laughs> and he's trying to get in, and, and the least noise is very upsetting, and somebody is asked to sing a song, and he sings um, The Holy City, you see, and he comes to the... Uh, oh, and the noise is going right through his head. But finally, when the applause dies down, the song is over, he turns to me and he said, come here. He sang that beautiful, didn't he? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, yeah, he did, yeah, yeah. Lovely vice, haven't he? <laughs> oh, yes, 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 yes. Gorgeous song, isn't it? I said, oh, yes, yes. Was enemy, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Public house is no place to be singing hymns. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, That's a lovely, lovely memory of uh, Neil Tobin la on the Late Late Show, which came live from the Cork Opera House in 1982. By the way, I think a lot of people got to watch that again last week when Gay Byrne died. It is well worth the watch. It's up. You can find it on YouTube. It's well worth a watch. It's 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 a funny, funny programme from start to finish. And uh, Neil Tobin was at his very, very best last night. And uh, Neil on fl our floor talking on Neil Tobin on Twitter at C103 Cork said so many sharp memories of a great actor and great wit. Uh, and Flora remembers in particular one line from Neil Tobin talking about politicians and the line was Gareth Fitzgerald couldn't tell a lie Charlie couldn't tell the truth and Bertie couldn't tell the difference and Flora says rest easy to uh, Neil Tobin may he rest in peace thank you for that 1850-333-103 OK let me go back to some of your commentary coming into the programme on the pubs still getting in calls and comments on the pubs and how would people feel about them opening on Christmas Day? This being the fact that they've now opened on Good Friday. We've had two years where they've been opened on Good Friday and it's almost like we've forgotten that they ever closed on Good Friday. And some people are saying, is it now time to look at this whole notion of closing on Christmas Day? Even though we did certainly hear from the Vintners Federation this morning, there isn't an appetite. Vintners certainly don't want it to open, but it looks like there are members of the public who would like the idea of going for a pint or a little drink on Christmas Day. Uh, so some of your calls and texts in Morning Patricia, when they opened the pubs on Good Friday, the only people who wanted to drink were people who had a drink problem. It would be the same Christmas Day, so it makes no odds. People who want it will get it regardless. That's true. If you want a drink on Christmas Day, you'll get a drink on Christmas Day. Tim says, I am a non-drinker, but I could accept Christmas Day opening from, say, 6pm to 10pm. I know of 
three pubs that were cut open on Christmas Day. Now, this is some 30 years ago. A Garda sergeant was seated inside one place when a Garda check happened. The Garda was sent to the border fairly quickly in the new year. That was about 30 years ago. Many times my Christmas was ruined when my father came home at four o'clock in the afternoon. He'd gone in for a quick, swift one after 12 noon mass. The law is disregarded. And I don't know how much of that is going on. There was a time when a lot of the pubs, you could get in through the back door yet and knock on the back window in order to get in. I don't know how many pubs open still do that illegally open on Christmas Day whether that is a common offence or not Hi Patricia having been reared in a pub grocer and general merchants I always remember how busy Christmas mornings were on one such occasion I being very young now this obviously is behind the closed doors the pub is I being very young and collecting empty pint glasses when one of the twice yearly patrons accosted me very sharply hurry up with the glasses there and just as quick I looked at him and replied jeez Johnny I didn't recognise you there should we haven't seen you since Good Friday suddenly there was complete silence followed by a big cheer and then a cutting glance from my father who later educated me with an improving an improving smile that whereby I may think such thoughts but it's better business etiquette not to make such a ver- verbally expressed comment. The most important words, education, education, education. Yeah, <laughs> that's a great story. And what is it, though, about people? The fact that you're not allowed into the pub, you want to be in the pub. It was. It's a bit like when we started talking about the Good Friday and the opening on Good Friday. There wasn't a big rush to the pub on Good Friday as everybody was, the way everyone was talking about wanting the pubs open, I think for the tourists, as Michael O'Donovan of the Vintners Federation ex- explained, it is the start of the tour season and it is a Friday and Fridays have a tendency can be busy days for particularly pubs that might do food or might do coffees in the morning or whatever and they were, they're all now able to, able to open to that and it's a busy day because it's, you know, start of a bank holiday weekend uh, as well but there wasn't the big rush to the pub but whatever it is about us it's in the our Irish psyche almost if we're not allowed to do it we want to do it and that's got a lot to do with people going on a lock-in on Christmas Day and they were doing it on Good Friday as well but as I say I don't know how many of those lock-ins still happen today uh, thank you by the way there's no name on that text uh, well written text thank you for that uh, Another texter. Pubs opening on Christmas Day. Sure, that's a decision for the Irish. Why or why do you have to mention the English? What they do is nothing to do with us. Well, I think people were mentioning pubs being opened in England because they had memories of going into pubs on Christmas Day in England. We had some people who worked, we had one listener who worked in a pub on Christmas Day. So I think that's the reason that they were mentioned. It wasn't that in any way we were saying we need to go to the English to find out should we open on Christmas Day. You know, you've, you've picked that up completely wrong. Uh, Tim and Bandon says, I don't believe tourists were going around knocking on public house doors. Pubs should never have been allowed open on Good Friday and don't even entertain the thought of opening on Christmas Day please do you want to paganise the country completely tourists will respect traditions and customs as we do when we go abroad it's just greed on the vintners part says Tim in uh, Bandon also on opening on Christmas Day no no 
don't open on Christmas the pubs on Christmas Day please says this texter having grown up in a pub it was only one of two days in the year that we got to spend time together as a family we were usually exhausted by the time Christmas Day came and then we would be facing in, into even a busier time with St Stephen's Day and that gap between then and, and the new year it's only one day a year where people get to spend it with their families. The people are concerned about people on their own. Why not open up local community centres and organise a drink-free event? There are other things that you can do besides everybody wanting or having to run to the pub. Thank you for that. 1850 333 103. Uh, Vincent in uh, Tulla in County Clare is listening to us. Good to have you along, Vincent. Vincent said, people are very good at organising coffee mornings. Why not get coffee morning? Get a get, something similar to what's been just said in that last text. Why not get a get-together in the community centre for people who are living alone on Christmas morning? You, know, you could serve like mince pies and hot chocolate. And if you wanted to, you could put a shot of brandy into the coffee as well and maybe bring in some music, have a little bit of a Kaylee uh, going on if locally people started organising events for the hour. Uh, because we are Sadly, hearing from people who say they feel very, very lonely on uh, Christmas Day. 1850-333-103. Sort of on the same theme of pubs. Mary was on to say, Patricia, I missed some of your programme yesterday uh, as I had an appointment. Uh, Maybe you mentioned this already. I was shocked to see that the Grand Hotel in Fomoy closed over the weekend. What a pity. I remember when there were two hotels in Formoy. It's a little bit like the Central Hotel in Mallow which is closed down. I hope this lovely building in Formoy will be preserved, not left to go to rack and ruin. It's a very ornate building with a lot of history attached to it, says Aunt Mary. We did mention it. We mentioned it on uh, Monday, I think, on the programme. We were talking about it because we heard that it, it had closed on uh, Sunday and I certainly said it was with great sadness. I hate to see, I really hate to see hotels closed down, particularly the last hotel standing in a town. And this, the central hotel in Mallow, I mean, you were lucky in Mallow that the Hibernian Hotel is on the main street, but the central hotel is a right old eyesore and a derelict rundown building. And I would hate to see the way the central hotel has gone. I would hate to see that happen in the Grand Hotel in Formoy. I don't have any information of anybody, if we can get any information on what are the plans going forward for the Grand Hotel in Formoy, we will bring it to you. But it would be great to think that somebody could take it over and reopen it again as a hotel. Because I do, I do believe, you know, hotels can be the heart of a town, especially when it's the only one uh, hotel that's there. 1850 333 103. And Eileen is on. Looking for advice, please. Does anybody know the best way to start a fire with smokeless coal? And I haven't a clue. Is it, I, I assume from that question in from Eileen, it's different than, say, lighting a fire with normal coal, is it? Could you just light the fire, you know, with kindling and then add the smokeless coal? Or is it you, or you just want. Okay, let me look at it again. You just want to light the fire with just the smokeless coal, no timber and nothing else. Okay. Obviously, there's a knack or a trick, is there, to lighting it? If anybody can help out our Eile in Clonakilty, we'd love to hear from you. 1850-333-103. Same number, by the way, for gardening questions for Peter Dowdle. Text or WhatsApp 0862. 103 103. The C103 Cork Diary. With Cork County Council. 
Supporting businesses, supporting communities, serving Cork. Visit corkcoco.ie. There is a bucket collection going on in Mallow today up to six o'clock. It's a native bumbleance. Bumbleance, of course, is the Children's Ambulance Service. Blood Transfusion Service. They've got a donor clinic in the West Cork Hotel in Skibbereen, three to five this afternoon and seven to nine tonight. Kildarri Drama Group, they're performing A Room with a Q. It's a comedy by Gronya Jordan. It opens tonight and it runs over the next five nights in the local community hall, eight o'clock each night. There's a coffee morning in aid of Mitchellstown Cope residents. It'll be held tomorrow morning, Thursday, in the Forest Hall, New Square in Mitchellstown from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. The Cork Nature Network, they're hosting a talk on wolves. It's with Kieran Hickey. It's a Blackpool community centre and it is tomorrow, Thursday at 7pm. And St. Patrick's Boys and St. Joseph's Girls National School are holding a table quiz in the Tanyard Bar on this Friday night. 8 o'clock start. All are welcome. A Cork band once asked... Where's me jumper? Now C103 is asking it too. Where's me Cork Simon Christmas jumper? Every year, thousands of people here in Cork get together to help fight homelessness by wearing a Christmas jumper to work, school or anywhere. Don't make a song and dance about it. Simply get your fundraising pack now at CorkSimon.ie. The Cork Simon Christmas Jumper Day. It's time to wear your jumper. With C103. And Tom by WhatsApp says, Hi Patricia, I can't believe you don't know how to light a fire. I do know how to light a fire but Eileen is raising the issue of how do you light a fire with smokeless coal and I don't know if I've ever worked with smokeless coal before so there's obviously a knack to it and seemingly there is because Joan and Mallow and a number of other people have been on to say you use a fire log first in the grate and then you put the smokeless coal on on after that and that's how you light a fire with smokeless coal. So if I get to light a fire with smokeless coal I now know what to do. Uh, Christmas Day opening of the pubs. Mary said, Christmas, I just hate drink. My husband uh, often upset our Christmas dinner. He he would drink so much on Christmas Eve, yeah. That's the dreaded drink, unfortunately. Hi, Patricia. I agree that pubs should stay closed as it's the one day of the year that staff can have time to celebrate Christmas with their families. Pubs are now open on on Good Friday due to public demand. Ireland is one of the few countries in the world who don't have a public holiday on Good Friday. So maybe we should campaign to change that in line with with the majority, says a texter. No name on that. Thank you for that. Keep your... Gardening questions coming in for Peter, please. 1850-333-103. John Paul is taking calls. Text or WhatsApp 0862-103-103. Now, Gardaí are visiting a number of schools in the Cork area this week. That's after they successfully prevented a more serious incident from happening in the city last Friday evening. Remember this incident that we spoke about where a group of teenagers uh, planned to raid a sports shop community? Police officers are going to be speaking to a number of those linked to the foiled raid and Gardaí became aware of the planned raid on JD Sports through social media and they say they'll continue to monitor it in a bid to prevent similar incidents from happening in the uh, future. Now our senior news reporter Fiona Corcoran spoke to Superintendent Colm O'Sullivan um, and he says that there can be consequences for anybody breaking the law. He first began discussing the incident at the city centre, as I say, that happened last Friday evening. We became aware through postings on social media of an event that may occur in the city centre on Friday evening. This was an intelligent-led policing operation. 
and in that we deployed resources out into the city centre to prevent anything that may occur. It seems to have been a copycat event from things that are happening in the UK and mainland Europe. But what I would say is our resources on that night prevented something from happening. And in my opinion, that was a very successful night for the Gardaí and for Cork City Centre. There were two people arrested for public order events or incidents at the scene on Friday night. People were wondering why more of these teenagers weren't arrested. Can you explain to people why they weren't? On Friday night, uh, the Gardaí issued directions under the Public Order Act and the people that were on the street on that night complied with those directions under the Public Order Act and once they comply with the directions under the Public Order Act, an arrest is not affected. And they did comply and they did leave the area in a peaceful manner once the direction was given. And people have questioned whether or something like this might happen again. Um, is it something that Gardaí now are very much aware of? We're constantly monitoring social media and it was as a result of our uh, monitoring of social media last week that we became aware of this event and it is something that we will continue to do in the future. It may well be posted on social media again, I don't know at this time, but if it is, we will respond accordingly. People um, following on from what happened on Friday night, a lot of people have expressed concerns about coming into the city at night time, especially now in the run up to Christmas um, after dark. You know, a lot of people are going to be coming in, doing late night shopping, going to Christmas parties. What would you say to them to assure them? Cork City Centre is safe. And that is the first message that I would get out, out here. Uh, Cork is a great place to shop in, to live in, to work in. You know, and I would encourage people to come in and use the city centre on a frequent basis. What I would say, in addition to that, is the guards are out there, the guards are out there patrolling, the guards are out there monitoring constantly. I would have no fear for anybody coming into the city centre. Yes, incidents occur. Incidents occur, particularly fuelled by alcohol and drugs. You know, we have a vibrant nighttime economy now, and as was evident a number of years ago during the Celtic Tiger area, we saw an increase in incidents in the city because of the vibrant economy that was there at that time and that vibrant economy is coming back. But what I would say, especially to parents, you know, children, teenagers inside in the city centre at night time or in in the evening time, you know, these these children go out and socialise but please talk to their their children, talk to their teenager kids in relation to dangers of alcohol, alcohol and drugs and in relation to what can occur should they become involved in an event. For instance, if a person is arrested for an event in the city centre, whether it's a a theft event, an assault event, and if they're convicted in the courts, it will have an impact on an opportunity to get a visa to travel abroad. We have a lot of people today that are travelling to America, to Canada, to Australia and New Zealand for work. All of those countries require a visa. And if you have a conviction from the courts, the chances of getting a visa for those countries is taken away from them. And it could affect a future career prospect for a teenage person or indeed a young adult person as well. Just with regards, going back to the to the incident on Friday night and a lot of the teenagers that were involved in that, um, will there be any, you know, you're talking there about um, repercussions for teenagers if they're caught in the act. Is there anything that's being done about the teenagers that were involved, finding yes. out who was involved? Yes, uh, we've identified a number of schools where these kids are going to school pr- currently and our community policing teams in the city are out into the schools this week, talking to the the classes in the schools, advising them, first of all, in relation to 
social media and the, the dangers involved with social media and also, as I've said a while ago, the consequences for coming, becoming involved in this. So our community policing teams are out in the schools this week addressing those issues within the schools. That's a good message to get across to them that something stupid they do now in their teenage years can come back to haunt them in adulthood. Thank you to our senior news reporter Fiona Corcoran there speaking to Superintendent Colm O'Sullivan and also good to hear that they're going into the schools to try to talk to and get that message through to the young people. And thank you to Marion and Clonakilty for kind words about the programme. Uh, we appreciate that, Marion. And to a number of people who are reacting to Eileen, who contacted us in Clon, who is having difficulty starting how to start a fire with smokeless coal. She's obviously made the switch to smokeless coal and she's having a bit of a problem trying to light it. A number of people, including Mary, says you have to have kindling and fire lighters in order to light the fire. John and Balancolic, easiest way to light the fire is with a fire log. You can actually cut the fire log in three with a saw. So you get three fires out of it, says John in Balancolic. That's a good tip. Someone else says, no bother at all using smokeless coal. Tell Eileen not to worry. Get a few dry sticks, a little bit of kindling, get your fire lighter, spark it up, give it a bit of a draft and pop on your smokeless coal and away you go. And we all know smokeless coal much, much better for the environment. OK, let's take a break and we are going to have Peter Dowdle, the IrishGardener.com. Join us if you've got a gardening question. Get it in, please. 1850-333-103. Text WhatsApp 0862 103 103. There are now even more ways to listen to C103. Tune in on your radio, go online, or grab our mobile app. And now you can ask your smart speaker to play C103. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Play C103. Okay. So you can just follow me. Try it now. Try it now. C103. This is the Court Today replay on C103. Peter Dowd of the Irish Garden.com uh, joining us. Uh, good afternoon to you, Peter. Good afternoon, Patricia. How are you? I'm very well. And uh, we have a lot of questions in. It's, it's a by imagination, or is this kind of a busy time in the garden? There's a lot of cleaning up and cutting back and 
getting it ready. Is isn't? Yeah. It is a busy time. It is a busy time. And I suppose every season is busy, depending on how, how busy you want to be. But like this, in the garden, you're always really thinking a season ahead. What you're, what you're enjoying now is always the, the, the fruits, if you like, of, of previous seasons and previous years' labours. So like the things you're doing now are you're planting bulbs, you're cutting back perennials, you're cutting back shrubs, pruning apple trees. Plus, of course, what you said there, you're, you're kind of cleaning up and tidying up anything that might be on paths or patios, things like that. So yeah, it's a busy time because you're preparing yeah. for next spring. I always think this is a time that the garden is almost going to sleep, but it's um, but with a lot of there's a lot of leaf drop, obviously. So and they can be really slippy and dangerous. So it is important that you get out and clean up all the leaves. Yeah, but don't dump them. The, the I know we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but don't dump those leaves. Those leaves, and leave them if they're falling on your shrub beds or flower beds onto the soil. Leave them because uh, don't think that uh, uh, tidy and in inverted commas is necessarily good. No, it's not. If leave them and they'll break down into the soil, and even the ones that you sweep up off paths and patios, either throw them directly onto your beds or into the compost bin, or just fill a compostable refuse sack with them. Leave them for twelve months. Tie it. And, and leave them for 12 months, they'll break down even anaerobically, and you will have a bag full of deep, well, of course, it'll reduce the size quite a lot, but you will have a bag full of the, you know, really, I mean, this the best soil conditioner that you can get for the garden. And even if the leaves are all wet and a bit slimy? Well, it doesn't matter at all. Throw them all in, they'll break down over 12 months. Okay. Or, that's if you want to put them in a bag, or else just add them to the compost bin or into the beds. Do take them off the lawn. Don't leave yeah. them on your grass and take them off paths, as you say, where they're too dangerous. Well, I, I was I was out doing that uh, yesterday because the lawn is just, I couldn't even see the grass. It, it was so covered. Now, I'm lucky I've got one of those green bins that my bin company take away, but I, I, I filled it and I, have, I still have more. So I might do that trick, put them in just a plain black plastic bag. Well, yeah, well, you can get the compostable ones. You know the compostable Oh, yeah, refuse I do. Yeah. I have some of those yeah. in the shed. I do indeed. Get, the, get them and uh, fill, your, fill, fill it with, with the leaves. Yeah, leave it for, tie it, tie it and throw it in a corner where you don't notice it. Uh, and next summer you will have a lovely, <laughs> crumbly compost to add to the soil. Okay. All right, straight into questions. Uh, Mary, hi. And actually, there's a couple of people who are asking a similar question. Could you ask Peter, when is the best time to cut back roses, please? You have any time realistically from now till the end of uh, the end of February, so before the, before the new growth starts next spring. But um, I'd like to leave them leave them alone for now because you get to enjoy the flowers in them. But if we are going to get very windy weather and if they're tall and lanky, they will be prone to to root rock. So in other words, <coughs> excuse me, if the, if there's a lot over the ground and if they're blowing in the wind, that's not ideal for their root system. So if it's Leave the flowers on them and the next, let's say, the next storm that's forecast, go and cut them just before that so they're not too exposed to the wind. Okay, but you don't have to worry about cutting them back with frost or anything? Not in the least. No, they're hardy as anything and they'll flower away. The frost will probably put pay to the flowers or or heavy frost will anyway. But um, there's no rush to cut them back at all between now and the end of February except, as I say, just from the wind. Okay, um, Michael in Bantry. I have two window boxes full of winter pansies. They got a bit tattered by the wind and the rain. Uh, should I replace them, says Michael, or will they recover? You know, if it's just a bit tattered, I'd say to Michael, just deadhead them and pinch them back a bit and they'll come on fine. They will, I think mean, they're resilient, even though they, they look very pretty and delicate. They're actually tough as old boots and they're, they're one of the best for flowers. I love them as flowers, the winter pansies. Um, but if it's a bit more than that or if there's any black spot or yellow spots on the leaf, well, that's a fungal problem. That's a fungal infection that's caused from getting too wet. That They won't recover from that. So if it's just a bit of, as I say, the flowers are a bit bedraggled looking, I'd leave well alone, they'll be fine. But if you see any black or yellow on the leaf, any sign of that, whip them out immediately. 
Hi, Peter. How do you get rid of switch grass that's taking over my flower beds? That's from Marie. If I knew I'd be a millionaire. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, if I knew how to do it easily, I'd be a millionaire. Um, it really, the, the, the only thing you can do is get down and dirty with it, I'm afraid. You've got to get down there on your hands and knees with a, a trowel and a hand fork and just dig it out. There is no magic wand for it, I'm afraid. And it is a curse. It, it, it travels everywhere. It tends out it's stolen or it's runner and every, everywhere it touches the ground, it produces more roots. So, you've, you know, it can travel metres in a year. Um, but I'm afraid the only way to, to control it is hand weeding. Great exercise for you there, Marie. Well, it's great uh, therapy. Yeah, great therapy. Uh, Betty in Bandon. I have a camellia. I had a camellia growing in a pot. It went two feet high and then I decided to set it out into the ground. But I now think I've planted it in the wrong place. So is it safe to move it now or should I leave it and move it at another time of the year? It depends. It doesn't say what, uh, what, how recently she planted it, does it? No. It sounds like recently, though, just from the mm. phrasing of the question, it sounds like she's only done it this year. So if you've only done it this year, I, I would say you're fine to move it. Like the, it, the root system will still realistically be within its own root ball. It won't have made much contact with the soil yet, depending on when you planted it. So if it's more than a year or so, it, it will certainly have made contact with the soil and you need to be more careful. If it's only in the last few months, it'll probably come out just the same as you planted it. Uh, so it'll be fine to move it in that situation. If it's more established, I would probably wait. Okay, the weather is getting cold now, which is what we want from this point of view. So, Camellia, I'd probably wait till it's really co- a bit colder. I'd wait till January. Do it during the month of January if it's anyway established. Okay. Somebody looking for advice on planting garlic. Is there a particular garlic for setting? And what is the best type of soil to grow garlic in? There's, there is, yes, you, you, you do want, want to get, it's a bit like your onion set, you get garlic sets, but they're, they're not sets, of course, they're little individual cloves, and they'll all develop into bulbs. But yeah, the, and the reason you'd buy them, you could plant your own garlic from the kitchen, absolutely, but the reason you'd buy uh, the, 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 the ones in the, in the garden centres is because at least you're getting your certified disease-free, uh, and they'll be, they'll be developed for growing your own. So you'll get, probably get better results, but there's nothing to say you couldn't grow your own as well. Um, best soil is wants to be very very warm and very very free draining so maybe Spain or Portugal or Italy <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can't guarantee the heat here but you can do what you you, are, you, you must do whatever you can to, to ensure it's, it's well drained so uh, put a good bit of grit into the soil leave the top of the, the garlic just I would say just touching the soil surface it's always a fine line you don't want it too exposed because it's, it's available to birds and the birds will peck it out uh, but you don't want it very too deep either Okay, Noreen says, is it too late to prune back hedge, hedging? It's of the palm tree variety. Should I wait until the spring? Where are we now? November? No, it's not too No, It's far from too late. It might even be too early. Uh, you, know, you could cut your palm trees back in November. Sorry. Sorry, I'm talking out. I'm thinking out loud, Trish, as we go. Okay. I would wait. No, I would wait actually until the spring. I wouldn't cut them back now. I would wait till kind of February or very early spring, late winter, early spring, because we're coming into the growing season as opposed to as you put it earlier on as opposed to the garden going to sleep so I would wait till kind of end of February and cut it back then and just on the garlic in fact at the risk of upsetting all his millions of fans uh, Monty Don somebody was talking to me recently that they had followed Monty Don's advice on planting garlic which was to plant it quite deep I think he said this either in one of his newspaper articles or on Gardener's World uh, and he was saying to plant garlic quite deep and I would disagree with him and uh, far be it for me to disagree with Monty Don there's millions switching off the radio station as we speak but um, I wouldn't so if you did hear him say that or read him say that I, I actually to be honest with you I actually think he possibly made a mistake or there was a misprint or something I wouldn't plant garlic too deep
Okay. Uh, here's, here's one of these lovely ones with advice. Jude, this is on our Twitter account. It says, hi, Peter. Uh, if you wanted to plant, if you wanted to plant in pots, medium and large size pots, what trees would you recommend that are low maintenance but would also help the environment? So if you wanted to plant small trees in pots. Yeah, medium pots and large pots. Okay, well, I, you see... I, I, I will answer the question. I will get to it, but <laughs> it, it, I suppose it depends on, on medium and large pots. Do you know what I mean? So, like, all trees nearly, well, not all trees, but most trees will survive in a pot if it's a big enough pot, if they have big enough root room. But it just depends on what you call medium and what you call large. Yeah, what's large to me could be different to you, yeah. Exactly. But you, you can exactly. get huge, big ceramic Absolutely pots. Can. Yeah. You can, yeah. Um, I would look at if it's a sheltered garden and if it's if it's not it's sheltered from the wind now, I mean, look at something like growing the Japanese maples. The second part of the question, which ones would be good for the environment? Quite simply, any of them. Any of them would be good for the environment. Um, so look at maybe Japanese maples because they look very well in a pot. If the pot's big enough, you could look at, at things like willow and mountain ash, uh, which will survive in a pot long term. Um, holly, I know we planted a holly or you planted a holly outside your, your studio yeah. last year. Hollies will do well in pots as well. Really, there's loads, there's loads of them. And the only thing is, now this isn't totally relevant to the question, but I, I know RT are thankfully highlighting the, the climate issue on television at the moment, but I was watching a bit of it last night. Now, I did switch off, so maybe it's changed. But they were, they were, they had somebody on from forest, from forestry group, and they were talking about the benefits of the Sitka spruce forest. Um, and I was a bit annoyed to see it, really, because when you're mass planting a Sitka spruce, it's not that beneficial, particularly if it's grown as a cash crop, because then it's all it's all chopped down in a few years and it releases a lot of carbon. Then. But it's, when you're plant, the reason I bring it up now is uh, plant a selection. And if you're plant, if you are, and now I know this caller is planting in pots, but try and plant a selection instead of all the one, and then you'll you'll you know then you're increasing more biodiversity. You're increasing the biodiversity. And when, try and go with the native Irish ones. And go, go with the native Irish, because when you're planting one. Uh, let's say you're planting 10 pots in this situation, if it's all the one tree, it'll attract the same insects, whereas more of them will, will sustain more insect life and more animal life. And it's the same is true in the forest. Uh, mass planting of one species is never good. So it should always be, I would go for, for, for selection of varieties. So maybe some mountain ash, holly, Japanese maples, and they'll all appeal to different wildlife. That's, that's good advice. Somebody wants to know, what's Peter's view on real Christmas trees? The cutting mm-hmm. down of... You've got to be well, against I, that, are you? I, I, I suppose it's just irrelevant to what I was just saying. I've always found it, ever since I was a small child, I found it, uh, I don't want to be bad humbug, I love Christmas, I love the whole thing about it. It's far too early, I think, now. But anyway, uh, I have always found it an obscene tradition to chop down millions of trees for use as an ornament for a couple of weeks, yeah. and then we just throw them out. And it is, when you stop and think about it, of course it is an obscene tradition. I still do it, Trish, I, <sighs> I hasten to add. I have a, a, a Christmas tree in my house, uh, or don't yet, but I will have. A, a real one. Without it. So, I mean, that leaves me in a contradiction that uh, I do find it obscene, but I still love it. Um, I love the idea, and I think this is probably what the caller is asking, uh, you can get living Christmas trees, so you can get them in your garden centre where they're growing in a pot, uh, and you can bring them into the house for the couple of weeks. Just make sure you're not putting them too near the, the open fire or the radiator because you'll damage the plant. Uh, <clears throat> but you can get them growing in pots, move them in for the Christmas period, and then put them back outside. It's a terrific again. idea. If you're it's, not it's chopping a, down a tree every year. It's a terrific idea. Okay, that's where we we wrap it up uh, for today. For today, Thank you for that. Have you a busy week? Uh, I have a busy week, and I just want to give a shout-out very quickly. I unfortunately don't have all the information in front of me, but okay. Friends of Marymount Hospice, 
which is a cause I care deeply about, as you know. Uh, they are organising a Christmas floral demonstration, uh, and I'm afraid I don't have all the details as, as regards who's giving the demonstration. It was sent to me, but of course I don't have it in front of me. It's on uh, Wednesday, the 20th of November, in Oriel House. That's uh, this uh, nice week. Yes, and okay. I've been to these before, and I'm, I'll hopefully be there again this year as a, as a paying guest, not as a speaker. Okay. Um, but, but they're fantastic. They're entertaining, and they, they, they're, you get so much from it. It's a floral demonstration in aid of Marymount it's on an Oriel House next Wednesday. Okay. Uh, for If you do want details, I know, just get on to the house. And we, we, we'll remind House. listeners again next Wednesday. Right. Be, I, imagine, I imagine it'll be sold out, Trish. Okay, good yeah. to hear. All right, Pete, thank, thank you for that. Thank and uh, thanks for joining us. That is uh, Peter Dowdle at theirishgardener.com. That's where I leave you for today. Thanks to John Paul, Nick Richards with you for the afternoon. Talk to you tomorrow at 10. Hi, Nick Richards here from C103's Afternoon Show. Santa's on his way and he wants to talk to court kids. Ho, ho, ho! <laughs> I just can't wait to talk to you all on Cork's greatest hits, C103. The Countdown to the big day is on, so don't miss your chance to talk to the big man himself. It's so easy. Simply go to c103.ie and fill out the special entry form for your chance to get a Christmas call from Santa. With World of Wonder, Blackpool and Mallow. For toys that spark imagination and joy. Worldofwonder.ie Get ready for Santa's Christmas calls. I could be talking to you with Nick Richards in the afternoon only on C103.